Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bible Thumper podcast, where somebody's got to say it. My name is Patrick Hayes, and we are going to be going over Mark chapter 2. Before we jump into that, a couple things we want to make everyone aware of. Number one, you can find this podcast wherever you find podcasts. So we put a few QR codes up on the screen so you can find us on Google, on Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts. And you can just scan those QR codes right on the screen. And that'll take you to your favorite place where you listen to your podcasts. And you can please follow us and share the podcast and download and listen to us. With that, You can also find us on Patreon. We just started a page, so anyone that has a desire to give us a little bit of support, we would appreciate that. And with that, we're going to jump into Mark chapter 2. So if you've got yourself a King James Bible, you can follow along with me as I start reading, and we're just going to go through the chapter, and we're going to stop and kind of talk about the couple things that stand out to me that I find to be interesting and meaningful. So starting in verse 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Now, notice Jesus preached. Okay, Jesus preached. And we we read about that in Mark chapter 1. We see it again here. And remember, if Jesus is preaching, that makes him a preacher. Verse 3, And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. So there was this fella that had palsy. Now that is a malady that affects your muscles. And that is just something that is general. We don't know how severe it was or how much of his body it affected, but clearly he wasn't able to walk, which is why he was being carried by his four friends. In verse 4, And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Now, we can learn a lot from this little verse. Number one, it is not easy to carry a human being up onto a roof, onto any roof. And it's certainly not easy to do it safely. So think about this. The faith that these four guys had, there were five of them present. There were the four guys that were carrying the one fella that was sick. Obviously, we're assuming that they were all friends. And these guys knew there was a problem with their friend, and they wanted to get him to Jesus. So they said, well, we know Jesus is in that house. So they they said, we can't, the, the guy can't walk. Okay, well, then let's carry him. And they put him on a sheet or a mat or something, and they picked him up, and they said, let's go. And they got to the house, and the house was so full that they couldn't get in the door. And they said, okay, well, Jesus is in there. We got to figure out a way to do this. So what did they do? They decided, well, we're just going to get him in through the roof. Now, I am telling you, I am in construction, and I get on roofs a lot, and I've carried heavy things onto roofs, and it is not easy, especially to get a, a, a guy who cannot help himself to get up on the roof, up on there, and to do it safely. So these four guys had a tremendous faith. They knew Jesus was the answer. They had a problem. Jesus was the one that was going to be able to fix it. So we got to get our friend to Jesus. And then this friend certainly trusted these four to let 
these four guys, try to get them up on this roof and, and lower them down through the roof. So here we are in verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now let's not forget that when they got up onto the roof, then they start to dismantle the roof. So they're taking apart the roof to make a hole so that they can lower this guy down to get him to Jesus. These guys were certainly understood the motto, adapt, improvise, and overcome. They had a problem. Uh, they weren't going to let that stop them. And this is really the type of faith that we all need to have. If you think about it, so many times we have a problem in our life and we'll attack that problem and we'll attack that problem sometimes in very logical ways. We will, when we're out of money, we'll try to get an extra job. We, when, when we don't have a place to live, we will try to uh, stay with a friend or live in a car or, okay, we're going to, we're going to attack the problem in a logical, pragmatic way. The thing we need to do as Christians is remember that Jesus is the solution. Jesus is not only the solution, he has a solution for our problem. And so many times it is different than the way we think it's going to be. When we go back through history and we look into the Old Testament, Jerusalem had been surrounded. The Babylonians laid siege to it. They destroyed the walls. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. And the Jews were in Babylon in captivity for 70 years. And when they went back, they were given their provision to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple and start that nation anew. They were given those provisions by a pagan king. God can use so many means to fix our problems that don't make sense to us. Remember, one of my favorite verses, and, and I'm pretty sure it's in Jeremiah. I'm not even going to try to quote uh, the uh, the chapter and verse right now, but the Bible says that uh, his ways are above our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so far above uh, our thoughts are his thoughts and, our, and his ways above our ways. The way God thinks and the way God is going to do things is different than the way you and I would ever do them. It always is. And that's why we need to go to God when we have a problem. Now, I'm not saying don't take your friend with palsy to the doctor. I'm not saying that. As a matter of fact, we're going to read about that in a chapter or two here in the book of Mark, where there was a lady that was sick and she said that she spent all the money she had on doctors and none of them were able to fix her. Good for her that she tried to go to the doctors. That's what I would do if I were sick. But I'm telling you, we must go to Jesus as a Christian. That's where we're going to find the answer. And the answer might be very different than, than what we would expect it to be. Okay, so verse 6, here come the bad guys. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? So they're talking about Jesus. Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know 
that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he rose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Forget about the idea that they just saw this amazing miracle and they didn't say, glory to God, this is amazing. They didn't just start all clapping in the room because of what they just saw. Forget about the idea that all they could do was complain. They only heard one thing. These these guys were definitely kind of glasses half empty kind of guys. And they heard Jesus say the phrase, your sins be forgiven you, and they just lost their mind. So they get upset because they say only God's supposed to be able to say that. And Jesus says, well, you guessed it. And just to make sure we're clear, I have the right to forgive sins, and I'm going to say thy sins be forgiven thee. Jesus very clearly, many, many times in the New Testament, said that he was God. This is one of those instances where he goes out of his way to remind the scribes, look, I understand that not anyone is able is allowed to say your sins be forgiven you because only God can forgive sins. But just so we're clear, I said it, and I'm allowed to say it, and I'm going to say it again right now. Jesus explained that he was God many, many times in the New Testament. It's just that Jesus didn't say it the way we would like him to say it, which is, hey, everyone, I just want to get your attention. Let's all stop and look over here. Just to be clear, I am God. Everyone got that? I'm the Messiah. I'm the chosen one. Uh, I am, you know, the, uh, oh, there's another word for it. I can't think of it. God didn't do it that way. God explained very clearly that he was God, but he did it to people who were literate when it comes to the Old Testament. All right, let's keep going. Let's see. I think we stopped in verse 12. And immediately he rose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. I think we repeated that verse, but that's okay. Verse 13, and he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And he passed by, uh, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Okay, so let's take a look at this before we get into verse 16. What was Levi? What did Levi do for a living? Anyone want to take a guess at that? And it doesn't look like we are having anyone comment here, but we got a few folks watching us live, so you're welcome to jump on in. Levi was a tax collector. That's what he was. And let me tell you, out of all the professions in Israel, someone who was a tax collector was not really liked. One thing you have to understand about a tax collector in 
Rome was that it was a private enterprise. So if you were a tax collector, you were given an area and the Romans expected this much money to be collected from this area every year. After that, anything you collected above and beyond that was your profit that you were allowed to keep. And that is how you made your living. So it was worth it to be a tax collector if you were a real shrewd guy that could, you know, and you were a good salesman and you could get what you wanted out of people. The flip side to that <coughs> is that the tax collectors, if they came up short, then they had to pay Rome what they owed them out of their own pocket. So the only guys that would go into this field were really kind of, you know, slippery, conniving salesmen, used car kind of salesmen guys, you know, lawyers and such that uh, nobody liked. I mean, absolutely nobody liked. So when you when you read about a tax collector in the New Testament, uh, the, the Jews just hated them. I mean, they hated them more than anything. Didn't matter if they were Jews or Gentiles or whatever. Uh, they just didn't like them. All right. Verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, uh, he saith unto them, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, this idea I'm going to explain just how stupid this idea is. The In the first scenario, when there was the guy sick of the palsy, the scribes were there. Now there are scribes and Pharisees. And they see Jesus eating dinner with not only sinners, but the publicans, meaning the tax collectors. <coughs> they didn't like that. And they asked about why Jesus was doing this. How could Jesus do this? This is amazing. How could he sit down and eat with these tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus compares it to sick people who need a doctor. Now, how absurd would it be if in front of every hospital there was a security guard and next to the security guard was a doctor and someone would come walking up to the hospital and the security guard would say, would you please stop for one second? We need to check something out. And the doctor would have you open your mouth and stick out your tongue and shine the flashlight in your, in your eyes and take your temperature. And he'd, he'd look you over and he'd say, nope, you're not coming in here, buddy. You're sick. And someone comes hobbling up and they got a, they, they twisted their leg and they got, they got a broken bone in their foot and the doctor would, you know, give them a little examination and say, nope, no, 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 you're injured, buddy. You're not coming in here. This hospital is not for sick and injured people. That would be absurd. That is what Jesus is explaining. He's saying, these are the folks that need the gospel. These folks need to learn about what I'm here to teach. These are the folks that need to be saved. I'm here for sinners. And as Christians, that's our job. Our job is to find sinners and help them get saved. And this gets into a, a larger lesson that we're not going to go into, but there's the idea of justification. That is salvation. The idea that we understand we are sinners 
and we go to God and we see what Jesus did on the cross and we say, man, I need that because I am going to die and go to hell because of these sins. And we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, Romans 10, 13, and we get saved and boy, are we excited. So we now have the righteousness of Jesus and that is what is going to get us into heaven. Because the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says there's none good, no, not one. So if we have no righteousness, we need righteousness. We can't get into heaven without it. We got this sin in our life. And believe it or not, there's only one thing that cleans and washes away sin. And that is a staining agent. And it is blood. And when Jesus bled and died on the cross, he provided that righteousness for us. And if we could just believe that Jesus is God, we are sinners without hope, our destination is hell, but God made a way when he died on the cross. And Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we believe those things, we can call on Jesus and receive that salvation. And that is the greatest news. That's the whole reason we're doing this thing, folks. That's why, I, that's why I'm a Christian. That's why I'm a pastor. That's why I have a church. That's why I own a Bible. That's why I read the Bible and pray with my kids. It is because of the gospel. It can take a lost person on their way to hell and it can get them saved and their sins washed away. And now they can be on their way to heaven. Great news. Great, great, great news. Now, after salvation, after that justification, comes sanctification. And that is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like me. And that process will go on for the rest of my life. And see, in the same way, that's what we're talking about. Someone comes to the uh, to the hospital and they're sick and they're dying. Well, the doctor gives them medicine and now they're no longer going to die. They got the antidote. They got the cure. They got whatever they need. They're not going to die anymore. But guess what? they're still not ready to leave the hospital. They need to recover. They need to heal. And that process is going to take time. After we get saved, then God starts working on the sin in our life. Then God starts to put pressure on us and the Holy Spirit convicts us and we read the Bible and learn what it says and God starts to change us. But these guys were complaining that Jesus was hanging out with sinners. Yes, because he wanted to get them saved. Now, does Jesus want their lives to change and for them to sin less and for them to be more like Christ? Absolutely. God wants that for all of us. But sanctification starts after salvation. We don't clean up our lives and get rid of the sin in our lives and then get saved in the same way we don't fix our broken foot. We don't uh, take care of the fever and the infection we have, and then go to the hospital. Okay, I think I beat that horse plenty. That thing is dead and in submission, so let's move it on. Let's see, when Jesus heard it, in verse 17, he saith unto them, they that are whole have no need of, of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they come and say unto him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Okay, first of all, how do they know that they don't fast? 
Are they living with them every day? Are they hanging out with them nonstop? And they know for a fact that these guys never fast. No, obviously that's not the case. One thing that you learn about if you go through history and you learn about the Jewish culture is that at the time of Christ, the Jews would fast one day every week. And most of them would all do it on the same day. So it was easy to see if someone wasn't fasting because the custom was for everyone to fast on the same day. Excuse me. That's the only thing I can think of as far as how they would be able to think that they know that the disciples don't fast. Other than that, obviously, they would just be guessing. It's not like they live with these guys. And Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. So Jesus is explaining that there is a time of celebration. There's a good time when the bridegroom is with you, and you don't want to be fasting. It's not a time for mourning. It is a time for celebration. So while Jesus is here, he is saying, my disciples aren't going to be fasting. That makes sense. There's going to be a time when I'm not going to be here, and then they're going to fast again. And he uses this example, no man also soweth a new piece of cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. So obviously, this is very clear. If you have if you have a new um, patch, you're not going to put it on an old garment. An old garment has been washed several times and it it has already shrunk. It's not going to shrink anymore. Sometimes you can buy clothes that are pre-shrunk. So that way, you know, it's going to stay that size. When you put a patch on a hole, there's a garment, an old one, you don't use a brand new patch. You cut a patch off an old piece of clothing. So it is already shrunk. Otherwise, when it gets on there, it's going to shrink and it's going to make the rip or the tear or the hole worse in the garment. So Jesus is given the same analogy or the he's using the same analogy. And we're going to read it again here with the wineskins uh, in verse 22. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles and the wine is spilled and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. So in the same way, it has to do with the wineskins. They've been stretched and the pressure that's created from the new wine as it ferments. Long story short, there is a time to do something, and this is not it. While Jesus is here, the bridegroom is here, they're not going to fast. Once the bridegroom leaves, they're going to start fasting again. In the same way, we're not going to use a new patch on an old garment, and we're not going to put new wine in old wineskins. Okay, verse 23. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, And his disciples began, as they went, to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisee said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? So let's explain this. And first of all, can I just say that these Pharisees and these scribes just won't give up? Man, they will not just shut up and leave Jesus alone. 
several times in this chapter. The whole chapter is just about these guys giving Jesus a hard time, and he's explaining, you guys misunderstand how this works. This is not the way it was supposed to be. And Jesus does it again here with the Sabbath day. Now, for a lot of us, uh, if you are not someone who keeps the Sabbath day, then you're not going to understand how this works. First off, let's go over in verse 23. They were passing through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and the disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. Were the disciples stealing corn? No, they were not. We read about the process in the Old Testament called gleaning. So the way it worked was God commanded that when you were to pass through a field, you would only pass through the field to reap the harvest one time. So all the fruit, all the vegetables, all the whatever, all the grapes, whatever was on the vine, whatever was ripe and ready to be taken and used, you would go through, you would pick that off and you would use that. And that would be the produce that you would get from the field. And you would either make something out of it or you would sell it. And that's how you would make your living. But you would not go through the field many times. In our garden, we go out there and we pick tomatoes every day. We pick peppers every day and pumpkins and squash and all the different things that we grow. And every day more stuff is showing up and is ripe and is ready to be picked. And other times there are tomatoes that are not just ready yet. So we leave them on the vine for a little while and then we pick them in a day or two. That's the way that we do it. In Israel, this was part of the welfare system that God set up. So everybody that was in agriculture, they would pass through the field one time and all the rest they would leave. And that was for the poor to go through and glean. So that was a way for people that didn't have enough money and needed some assistance. They would go through any of these fields and they would glean uh, off the field. So that, that's what the disciples were doing. They were not stealing anything. Number two, in verse 24, the Pharisees were complaining because they were doing it on the Sabbath day. So they didn't like that. They said, look, this is Saturday. You are just not allowed to work. <clears throat> Verse 25, and he said unto them, have you never read what David did when he had need and was in hunger, he and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And then let's just finish up these last two verses, and then we'll talk about the Sabbath day for a minute and what Jesus was talking about. And he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So in these four verses, what we see is that Jesus gives an example of something that was done in the Old Testament. Now, if you go back through the book of Leviticus, you find that when the tabernacle was set up, the priests had a duty where they would go into the holy place and they would replace the showbread once a week. And I believe it was on Saturday when they would do that. <coughs> then what they would do is the priest would eat the showbread. The showbread was there just for the priests to eat. That was one of the, 
that was the way it was set up. And that was one of the benefits of being a priest was what that you got to eat the showbread when it was changed out. David was fleeing for his life from King Saul and him and his men ended up going past the tabernacle and they were hungry, starving, hungry unto death. And the high priest gave them the showbread and had them eat that because it was able to give them the little bit of nutrition that they needed in order to be able to continue and to be able to escape from Saul who was pursuing them. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that, look, guys, David's plan wasn't to starve to death as he was fleeing for his life. Keep in mind, David was the anointed one. Saul was not to be king. Saul was hunting David. David was trying to survive. He was not willing to kill Saul because Saul was anointed of God at one point until the Spirit of God left him, and we're not going to get into all that. So David was trying to do right. It was a bad situation. They were starving, and it wasn't acceptable for the priest to say, nope, sorry, showbread's for us. You're not allowed to have any. Go ahead and starve right over there in the corner, and we'll just bury your dead bodies in a day or two. That is absurd. In the same way, Jesus is saying when people are hungry and they need to eat, they're going to glean from these fields. And it's going to be on a Saturday sometimes. Now, is that the plan? No. The plan is when you honor the Sabbath, you don't work on Saturday. You remember the Sabbath. You keep it holy. You don't work and you rest. Okay, That's what the Bible says to do. And that's what we all plan to do. But guess what? That doesn't work for everybody. The Levitical priests had duties every Saturday. And God showed us in the Bible that there are going to be people who need to work even though it's the Sabbath day because that is just required. None of us would say we need to shut down all hospitals and no doctors and nurses go into hospitals on the Sabbath day. It would be a ridiculous idea. In the same way, firemen work. There are people that need to work, and some of them are going to have to do it on the Sabbath day. In Israel, they had sacrifices that were daily, that were weekly, that were monthly, that were annually. They had sacrifices every day of the week, including 52 Saturdays of the year. And, and I do understand that the way that the Jewish calendar works is not 365 days. It's actually 12 30-day months. I'm aware of that, but just, you know, go with it for uh, the sake of my explanation. So there were going to be priests that had to work on Saturday. It wasn't their rathers, but there were uh, but there were things that had to be accomplished and there were priestly duties that had to be taken care of. In the same way, we read about this later on. We read about, well, what are you guys going to do when your animal falls in a ditch Friday night after sundown? You're just going to leave it in there and you're going to go the, you're going to go back Saturday after sundown. And you're going to take them out. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, the Sabbath day starts Friday at sundown. It does not. Saturday doesn't start at midnight in um, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish culture, the way that God set it up. I shouldn't really say the Jewish culture uh, in God's calendar, <laughs> God's calendar that was started in Genesis. It wasn't the Jews' calendar. It was God's calendar. And God has the days reset at sundown. So Friday night at sundown, that is when the Sabbath day would start. That's 
why my explanation might have sounded a little weird. Jesus was saying, you're not going to leave your animals in a ditch overnight. You're going to go get them. What happens when one of your animals is giving birth and they're having difficulty and the animal needs help giving birth and it happens to be Saturday? You're not just going to let the animal and the baby die. You're going to go out there and you're going to take care of it. There are certain things that come up on Saturday and and we deal with them. Jesus is saying, and he, he reiterates this in this last verse, and he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The whole point of the Sabbath day was to be a blessing to man. It was never set up to be this horrible obstacle that gets in the way of everything. It was made to be a blessing. And it is a blessing and it's wonderful. But also, guess what? Sometimes stuff's going to come up when it gets in the way and you, you can't honor it the way you want. So just do it and take care of it and then go back to honoring the Sabbath day the way that you want. So Jesus was telling these guys, you missed the point. The point of this thing, the point of, do you know that the point of all God's commandments is to be a blessing to us? Do you know that every single time God says, don't do this? It is because it's bad for us. Every single time God commands us, do this, he does that because it is good for us. That's the reason the commandments of God, the law of the Lord is in place, because he wants us to be blessed and not cursed. And finally, verse 28, therefore, son of man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So Jesus was saying, I'm the one that made the Sabbath. I know what I'm talking about. Okay, everyone, you are wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us. Something you should know is that over the next day or two, we're also going to start to be on YouTube live. So when we do these live videos, you're going to find them on Facebook and you're going to find them on YouTube. And we're going to be able to simultaneously cast to both places at the same time. Along with that, please don't forget that we are on uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, we are on Apple Podcasts, we're on Stitcher, we're on Blueberry, we're on Audible. We're pretty much every place you can find us. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us on TuneIn Radio. We're trying to get on iHeartRadio. And, and if you know of another podcast platform you want us on, just email me or uh, message me. You can email me at BibleThumperPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for joining us on uh, Bible Thumper Podcast, where somebody's got to say it. Have a great night.